2: Hi everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a Data Privacy Analyst at Kasey and Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation, as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, who's a Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at Kasey and Privacy Experts. Jamal is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organizations across six continents and in over 30 jurisdictions, helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Welcome, Jamal.
0: Hey, Jamila, how's it going? I'm
2: good, thank you. How are you? You
0: know what? I'm fantastic. Look at this, check this out. We've just leave this in the post. It is an award. It's an award to the Privacy Pros Academy for the best data privacy trend provider as the global choice for 2022. So uh, yeah, super delighted about yeah, that.
2: That's excellent. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. It's all of the uh, amazing podcasts you've been doing that yeah. You must have uh, persuaded someone to award us for that. Clearly, it's definitely not
2: even... <laughs> I'm very excited for our guest today. Our guest is Matthew Lowe, who is a Senior Consumer Data Privacy Attorney at IBM, and he has previously held roles such as Global Cybersecurity Policy Manager and Data Privacy Expert. Matthew is also Lead Instructor, Data Privacy and Cybersecurity at BrainStation, which is the global leader in digital skills training matthew received his jd and ma from the university of illinois college of law and he received his masters of law llm cyber law and data privacy from drexel university's thomas r klein school of law he has been published in globally circulated academic journal and in his spare time he teaches privacy and
0: security welcome matthew thank you for joining us thanks for having me welcome to the privacy podcast matthew i feel like this podcast was really created just so that we could have you feature on it with such a credible and demonstrable history of all of the amazing things you've been working on and continue to work on i appreciate that and also congratulations on the award i didn't know
3: about that but now i feel like i'm definitely in the right place so i'm, I'm excited to have this conversation <laughs> thoughts and opinions are my own here if anyone takes any issue with anything i've said if i've accidentally said anything super controversial my own thoughts don't don't go after anyone that i'm affiliated with or anything like that But
2: you can so, come after me <laughs> listeners yeah, d- don't don't worry about that, Matthew. Jamila's
0: already said she's oh, suing. No, she... yeah. She's got your back. <laughs> I appreciate
2: it. As we always do on the Privacy Roads Academy podcast, uh, we always start off with an icebreaker question. So, Matthew, what website or app doesn't exist, but you really wish that
0: it did? Oh. oh.
2: I can tell you mine.
0: Yeah, Go on man. Let's, uh, let's hear it's, yours while Matthew. It's, it's been born about out
2: Israel. of my housemate being away for three weeks, and it's like a version of Tinder, but when you need someone to remove a spider from your house, that's what I would say. So-
0: you want, to match, you want to match somebody who's going to come and remove a spider from your house.
2: Yeah, or just any bug, really. <laughs> that would be great. Or because I'm quite sure if someone could reach like high shelves so I don't have to fall off a chair whilst doing so. So, some, some version of Tinder for like household. Have you tried
0: asking your neighbors to help?
2: No, I don't talk to my neighbors. Maybe I should.
0: Yeah, maybe you should have an app. Step. Try talking to your neighbors.
2: We live in the digital age. I've forgotten how to make
0: friends. I'm sure we can help you with that. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit earlier today, actually, off the back of a conversation I was having with someone. And I was thinking, if I could have a website or an app that doesn't exist yet, what would really be useful right now is if I could go on one website or if people could go on one website and report when somebody is making malicious or fake accounts of them, when someone is posting pictures Mm -hmm. of them because they've broken up into a relationship or something, especially like women... Uh, who get all of these like revenge profiles created and p- pictures posted that they're not comfortable with because of whatever delirious partner or boyfriend relationship they've ended because right now so many people get in touch all the time saying look there's this guy who's harassing me or there's this person who's harassing me and they're posting pictures from when we was in the relationship or they're creating all these fake accounts and i'm trying to report it to facebook i'm trying to report it to instagram they're not doing anything about it what can i do it's really making me distressed and depressed so if they it was a website where you could go put in some details and it could actually go and make contact with all of the different providers for you, search for those things and alert you or alert those providers to those things. I think that would be great. Awesome. Both
3: of those answers are great. Two completely different directions. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but both really good ideas. I think, is it okay? I'm going to remove the qualifier of doesn't exist yet because I don't know what does it. The- Honestly, there's so many apps and APIs out there that it probably does. And and this is maybe my ignorance of technology. But you know how when you're using your credit card, right? You can go into your mobile banking app and you can lock it so that if someone else makes a purchase, they can't. Yeah. Um, I would love to do something like that for like my vehicles, right? So if somebody is, I, I, I lock it when I get out on my mobile. So if anyone starts the ignition or tries to move the car in any way, I get an alert and I can just kill the engine. That would be fantastic. I, I think that that's like a next layer of security that probably exists in some way. Yeah,
0: so, so what you're saying is what you'd like to do is be able to control the immobilizer on your vehicle from like a mobile device.
3: Yeah, I think that that technology does exist. But the extent to which you are notified and you have control over, you know, when it's locked and when it's available, I don't know to if that exists but i like it that
0: sounds like pretty cool i think that's something quite sensible actually and i can see as people get more and more of these electric cars it's probably going to be like one of those default settings that should come with every electric car
3: did i just give an awesome million dollar that
1: idea <laughs> probably <laughs>
2: can we say um these ideas are all copyrighted
0: IP IP well Matt, is it probably most versed in IP law than all of us
2: yeah and we will sue I've, I've heard <laughs> Americans like to sue people so we will sue if anyone steals these items amazing okay thank you I yeah,
3: appreciate so J- J-
0: Jamila's gonna sue on her own capacity um, <laughs> I'm not taking any liability on for that at this stage. Unless we can get someone to underwrite underwrite the risk. Okay, well, thank you, Jamila.
2: (laughs) You're very welcome. Right, let's get on to the proper questions. Matthew, how did you get into data privacy?
3: That's a good question. When I went to law school, I had spent two years working at a labor union. And so I, I just naturally figured that I would go into labor and employment law. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in law school, I also picked up my master's and that, that's what the master's is in. It's in labor and employment. And I figured, yeah, cool, that's that's my job. I've, I've worked with labor disputes and collective bargaining and it seems really interesting and, and mm-hmm. I'm into it. But I think that a lot of people who go to law school or who join the professional world just don't know the full scope of things you can do at a company, right? And data privacy was definitely not top of mind. When I started working at IBM, that's when GDPR came into effect. So that was May of 2018. And so my first real experience at my company in onboarding was what is GDPR and what is data privacy? And I was like, this is amazing. And it's it's like compliance and it's transactional and it is you know human rights conscience. It's in the tech space. So I was like, this is something I really wanna get into. So in the background of the various functions that I held um, at my company, I was constantly learning more about it and trying to figure out if it was something that I wanted to do. And it was. And so eventually I moved more into the transactional space, business development, mergers and acquisitions. I'm sure you can imagine there's like a need for, you know, if we're working like a third-party consultant, what data should we be sharing? There was just a need for someone to kind of step in and and provide some of that guidance. So I raised my hands proactively. And I think a lot of people can do this and should do this, right? Like even even if you're not currently working in data privacy at your company, there's still so many ways to carve out an opportunity for you to be like the data privacy guy on your team. So that's what I tried to do. So I was like, okay, I'm going to work with compliance and I'm going to help to create some kind of guidance and instruction for the teams and have legal approve it and review and everything else like that. And and that was my first kind of foray into the space. And then I also got my CIPP certification at that time as well. And then organically, just working with these different players in this space, I just networked onto regulatory compliance. And then that led me to policy and cybersecurity. And then it was just a natural, you know, or on paper, it looked like a natural transition into data privacy. It was anything but. It was like all over the place. That's pretty much it.
0: Sounds like a very fascinating journey. And, you know, I'd never have put labor laws leading somebody down into data privacy but you know what it's amazing that that has happened and one of the things that we find is so many people who are training as paralegals who are actually doing legal work are a little disheartened and disenfranchised with how their career is looking especially here in the UK and they find that when they pivot their career towards data privacy they can actually now start thriving and it sounds like you came across something that you found quite fascinating and as as a result of that fascination has kind of really led you down to get a little more knowledge and you've gone and gone and some certification. You found that you've really enjoyed it. It's actually making you feel great about the work you're doing. And you can see the impact it has. You mentioned human rights, the impact it has on the actual people who this person later relates to. I think everyone we speak to on this podcast is we all share this common passion is that we actually want to stand up for people's rights. We understand how this can have an impact. And that's probably why we do what we do in anything other than a straight line. And I mean, look, let's not be around we should pretend anything is data privacy is fascinating it's constantly changing it's constantly shifting and by the time you learn something it's outdated because something new has come to replace it so it's a very challenging place to work in unless you have the passion for it you're going to hate it so this is for all of the people who are really passionate about having that challenge and really doing something that's meaningful Matthew you mentioned You went and got your CIPP. So, for those of you who are listening that don't know what the CIPP is, the CIPP is one of the IAPP certifications. That's the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And the CIPP demonstrates that you have a strong grasp of European data protection law. So, it actually stands for the Certified Information Privacy Professional over Europe. And the IAPP have the CIPP, the E, A, US, C, and basically each of those letters signifies a different jurisdiction. So, the US is certified information privacy professional over the US, the C is for Canada, the A is for Asia. Do they have any other jurisdictions? I think that's what they have right now. What I wanted to ask you, coming from the academy where we actually, you know, take people on a mentoring program rather than just giving them two days of training we actually take them through a mentoring program when they come on and really grasp how all of this stuff applies rather than just memorizing information to go and pass an exam we actually teach them how to really learn how to do things properly how all of this stuff applies in principle and how case studies and enforcement action and all of that really feeds in to the spirit of the gdpr to really understand this and learn how to do things properly what was it that actually drove you to seek a certification, what led you to do the CIPP certification, and how do you think that's helped you in your career? Great question. A couple of things.
3: First, I figured that in preparing for the certification, it would naturally force me to have to study, learn, and figure out what data privacy is. Obviously, <clears throat> taking the certification, there is an expectation that you're going to have the requisite knowledge to demonstrate some level of expertise. So, and I wanted to have that. And then I think once you have the certification, it is a signal to the marketplace that, look, I, I have at least that experience. So even if I haven't worked in a professional capacity or have years of experience in that sense, I at least have the certification. I know enough to be dangerous. I'm conversationally proficient in data privacy principles. And so I thought that that was a great way to get my foot in the door and to show people that I was serious and that this is something that I wanted to pursue. I think it was definitely a fantastic investment. And it did exactly that. I think it was a great conversation starter, fantastic icebreaker, something that stood out on the resume, something I certainly encourage people to get. There's plenty of data privacy professionals who are fantastic at what they do and who don't have the certification. But I think that these tend to be people who are maybe more technical and kind of found a natural path in. For people who are really trying to break in with no other past experience, I I think that that's the best way to do
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And we have this 12-week privilege Privacy Pro's um, Accelerator, and what we've discovered there is there is a proven methodology that we have using our five pillars, and one of those pillars includes that. So on the Privacy Pro Accelerator program, we take people on for 12 weeks, and this week, in fact, one of our mentees on the current program, he grew up working in his family restaurant. He's done that for about 10 years, and for the last two years, the business didn't go according to plan, and he became an Uber driver. And his wife and himself, they're like, you know what? He's got so much more potential to to fulfill. He came onto the program. He's gone through the 12 weeks. And now he's just secured enough as a data protection professional in this market with no previous experience. I mean, this is how crazy it is, is when he joined the program, he did not even have a CV. He'd never applied for a job in his life. So he was like, we don't even have a CV. So we took him through our Accelerator program. And there's some videos out there of people on our LinkedIn. And you can really follow his journey. He's inspired a lot of people. But let me just tell you about these five principles, because I know you're big on mentoring. And you can tell me like how you feel about this program that we take people on. So the first step we found is... Before you do anything else, we need to build the foundations and that is all in the mindset. So the first pillar is all about the mindset, and we really take people from wherever they've come and strip away any self-limiting beliefs they might have, anything that's happened in the past where it's knocked on their confidence, and really have them top, adopt the privacy pros mindset, which is the growth mindset, and really get let go of any kind of fixed mindset, anything holding themselves back, and get a little bit more awareness and realize that you know there's a much greater level on which they should be playing. Once we've got the mindset sorted, the next thing we do is we focus on subject matter expertise. This is where we break down all elements of European data protection law and we go through the master classes and help them to really get an in-depth understanding of each of the different areas of data protection law, how it applies in practice, and why it actually matters. So they get the subject matter expertise, and this helps them with the conversations that they're going to have with their colleagues, with their peers, especially when it comes to having conversations with hiring managers and recruiters, because they really know that they actually know their stuff rather than just say, hey, I know the seven principles or I've memorized Article 29 means this, but nobody cares what Article 29 says. Everyone knows what it says. Just because you've memorized it doesn't mean I'm going to give you a job. I want you to explain to me what that means to me as a business. What are the challenges I'm going to have with that and how you're going to help me solve that? And unless you become subject matter expertise, just regurgitating text is not going to help. And what we find is sometimes people who self study, that's all they can do is memorize text because they've never sat with a mentor to try and understand how this stuff applies. So we've got the first mindset we've got the first pillar that's the mindset the second bit is a subject matter expertise and then the third step is exactly what you've just mentioned here Matthew is they need that credibility how are you going to get that credibility it's by going through a certification and it can't just be any certification it has to be one that is recognized by industry not just in one jurisdiction but in all jurisdictions how do you do that you have to get something that is either ISO certified or ANSI approved right so the IAPP certifications they are ISO standardized which 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 means that you can go to any part of the world and everyone will recognize that as a bona fide legitimate qualification. And of course, the International Association of Privacy Professionals is the most recognized body when it comes to awarding privacy credibility. So we take them through the IABP official training So now they have the mindset, they have the subject matter expertise, and now they have the credibility. The next thing they need is, there's no point talking about all of this stuff. You have to demonstrate you actually do it. So we take them through the practical experiences and we give them practical experience with our clients or some case studies. And we really get them to have a go at doing this stuff and they will shadow us and work with our consultants. And we focus on four key areas. We teach them how to write privacy notices in a language that anyone can understand. So they're clear, concise, and transparent. We help them with responding to data subject access requests because a lot of businesses, especially here in the UK and Europe, are struggling with those and understanding exactly how they should be responding to those when they need to ask for more information, when they should be denying them. And we also teach them how to do data protection impact assessments. And we also teach all of the stuff to do with the data mapping so they can effectively put together a very good record of processing activities. So that's the next step is giving them the practical experience in all of these key areas. And the final bit That wraps it all up is the personal branding, which we kind of start from day one when we start focusing on their mindset. And the personal branding is all about branding themselves in a way where they are actually showing the value they can bring to an organization, how passionate they are about privacy, and why they're someone that needs to stop trying to fit in and actually be outstanding. Because at the Privacy Pros Academy, we're building a community of ambitious professionals and together we're empowering businesses to adopt honest privacy practices so that together we can make sure that every woman every man and every child on this planet has the freedom over their personal information that's
3: fantastic honestly I think that there's such a demand now for this
0: skill set to your point
3: earlier it is so new and it's just ripe for folks who have no previous background and becoming subject matter experts and really being able to contribute to it and to jump into it and my path into it was a little bit more you know haphazard a little more diagonal along the way as opposed to a straight line I I feel like if I had known about this, <laughs> it probably would have helped to accelerate a few things. I think that's fantastic. And I think that the thing that you're offering that's especially a value is that practical aspect, right? Because you're absolutely right. I think that whether you're in law school, or you're preparing for taking a written certification exam, a lot of it is memorization, but not focused on applicability to industry. And that really is the value, right? So when you join a company, and, and they're expecting you to add value from day one, do you understand how to do a privacy impact assessment? Do you know what to look out for? Do you know how to respond to a DSAR effectively? And on paper, again, It seems like when you read the CCPA, when you read the GDPR, it seems like, yeah, this is fairly cut and dry until you get your first one. And then you're like, okay, hold on a second. So I think it's really great that you offer that and, and you provide that context because it's an incredible value add on anyone's journey kind of jumping into the space.
0: Yeah, thank you, Matthew. The other thing you mentioned when you were speaking earlier, you said that your investment in the CP certification was really worthwhile. Now, a lot of the times we speak to individuals who struggle or who are really on the fence about whether they should make an investment in their own personal development. A lot of people will be like, you know what, I don't want to pay for this. I'm going to wait for my employer to pay for it, or I'm going to find another employer who will. Why is it important to really take control of your own personal development and believe that you are worth investing? Yeah, I mean, it's great, the idea
3: of being able to break into a company and then have them pay for the certification. Obviously, if you can do that, do that. It's just very difficult to do, especially if you don't have that initial background. If you don't have the work experience, if you can't really create that clear narrative as to why it makes sense for you to join a data privacy team, then you kind of do need to invest in in something that is going to signal to people that, hey, I'm serious about it. Hey, I do have this requisite knowledge. I think that once you break in Certainly, further education, further certifications, you don't have to stop at, let's say you have a CIPPE, you don't have to stop there, you can also get your CIPP US, you can also get your CIPM. And those things you can ask your employer to invest in, right? I also have my LLM in data privacy and cyber law, which that is, is a massive investment that no one needs to make, quite frankly, right? That, that's maybe a little bit more over the top. But that initial investment on in a certification, I think, you know, if it has the potential to make that big of an impact on your brand and how prospective employers are viewing your qualifications, then I, I just don't see why you wouldn't. Thank you. So.
0: On that note, then, what advice would you give for people going into or seeking to pivot their careers into data privacy? The first thing I would say is make sure you that's what you want to do, <laughs> because
3: to your point earlier, like the data privacy space is very wild west right now, it's especially depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. I think that Europe has had a bit of an advantage since they kind of started this off with the GDPR and now all of these other countries and the U.S. on a state-by-state basis are now trying to kind of keep pace with it. But, you know, take it from me who is in the US and who is dealing with US scope. We have the CCPA, California super active, the CPRA coming into effect. It's I mean, portions of it already are, but the CPRA coming into effect in 2023. And then we also have Virginia and Colorado, Utah, Connecticut most recently. <laughs> and, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, how do these different frameworks and requirements differ? How do they apply to situations that are totally novel and weren't contemplated by legislators when they were creating these regulations? It's very complex. So for me and for this generation, I think it's the best space to get into, quite honestly, because I think we thrive on that unpredictability and that chaos. I think we want to be constantly challenged and I can't think of another space that really offers it, especially at this level of accessibility. I've seen people working in data privacy and we're very, very good at it who had backgrounds that just, you know, on paper don't make sense. It's like, how did you get into data privacy? But everybody with their eclectic and diverse backgrounds still make it in, and they're still contributing in really meaningful ways. But the first thing is, is just make sure that you have the fortitude, the endurance, and the interest, and the passion. And make sure that you also understand what data privacy means, not just at the product level, but also at the human rights level, at the user level. Because that is, is really going to help inform a lot of the decisions that you make. Sometimes when you have to make a judgment call, you are going to want to lean more towards, okay, well, how do we protect people at the end of the day? So focusing on, on the people aspect is really critical as well. And then the other thing too is just network and, and network organically. I have a lot of people who reach out to me and they're like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm interested in getting a job. And that's great. But <laughs> the problem is, is that if I don't know you, I can't really vouch for you. And I think the purpose of networking is to form a bond is to form a rapport um, and is to ideally find a mentor and, and mentorship is really critical in this space. I mean, it, it's totally invaluable. So Find someone who you can be comfortable with getting coffee or just calling them up every once in a while and asking them, what do you deal with on your day to day? That will also allow you to get a lot more context and familiarity with the space and what it offers and whether or not you're actually interested in pursuing it. Um, And then eventually, once that person does know you, does get a sense of what you're capable of, it can lead to a potential, you know, maybe even at least interview. So networking and mentorship is really key.
0: Thank you, Matthew. That's super valuable. And from speaking to you in the past, one of the things I know that you're quite keen on is also giving back and you actually take on a lot of mentees. So for the people who listen to this podcast who are, you know, you know, do, doing quite well in their careers, they've established themselves with a little bit of a, a position of authority, a little bit like yourself. Why is it important for us to give back and take on mentees?
3: I think because we have an opportunity now to shape the next like generation of the incoming folks in these spaces, right? We we have somewhat of a say where potential, I don't want to say gatekeepers, but we have a really interesting position where we can take a look at people where we're like, yeah, this person would be awesome on my team, right? And even though I might not have availability on my team or at my company. I know that this person would contribute significantly to the industry. And and I think we have a responsibility once we get to this position to kind of scout and look out for people who have that passion, who have that interest, who are aligned with these values and, and helping them get to where they are going. For me, I can tell you that years ago, it was really a lot of people who stepped out of just offered to mentor me that helped significantly. I couldn't have done it alone. Right. I mean, there were a ton of people who really took the time out to teach me, to walk me through their days who even today, I have multiple mentors as well, just because I take on mentees doesn't mean that I don't still seek out mentorship and have mentors. The bond is is really necessary. It helps with constant learning and growth. And it goes both ways. I mean, the things that I also learn from my mentees is fantastic, especially if your mentees are a little bit younger, the technologies that they're using and how they're using it very helpful, because I personally, I don't do TikTok dances, right? And I don't do like I, I don't use Instagram reels the way other people do and stuff. So just just learning about how the next generation of users are are interacting with technology is also incredibly invaluable for me too. So it's benefits that go both ways.
2: I think it's definitely important even when you're mentoring people to have your own mentor as well and always keep improving. Matthew, have you faced any challenges when breaking into the data privacy field or just in your career generally? And how did you overcome them?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's challenges every day, even now that I'm in it, <laughs> right? And I think a lot of it just comes around with, you can do as much as you can to prepare, mm-hmm. but you also need experience. There is nothing that can ever substitute for experience, which is why, again, I think that when we talk about experiential learning, when we talk about case studies, when we talk about practical knowledge of really defining what a privacy impact assessment is in context, critically valuable, yeah. because there's no amount of reading in the world. So, you know, and I think that that was probably a challenge initially was, great, you know, all this stuff, you have the certification, you you have the um, you have this background, you've written articles about it, but what do you actually know about doing it, right? So so that that's always, I think, going to be the the biggest challenge when breaking into the space, but clearly there are ways to to demonstrate that.
0: I'm super pleased that we have actually opportunities and programs in the Private Supplies Academy where we give people that hands-on learning, either working with live clients or uh, simulations where they can actually get that hands-on practical experience. So not only do they know it from a theoretical point of view, but they actually know what to do when it comes down to it. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: I know one thing that you're passionate about, Matthew, is around facial recognition technology. I don't know very much about it, but what I do know is that on my latest Apple update, or my latest iOS update, they have now made it so that the face ID can recognize you even with a mask on.
1: Mm-hmm. What, what
2: do you think about things like that? Do you think it's useful or more of an invasion of privacy?
3: It's kind of incredible. I, and I think it's a testament to how far technology has come. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I'm mostly just mesmerized by it, to be honest, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to publish an article back in December, mm-hmm. for the Rutgers Journal of Computer and Technology Law on this topic. And what a lot of people don't know, actually, about facial recognition technology is that it first came out in the 60s, or at least that's when Woody Bletso, who really kind of coined this term and was looking into it, out of Austin, Texas, that's that's when we saw kind of the first iterations of it. In 2020, when we had the death of George Floyd and this sort of resurgence and salience of Black Lives Matter, yeah. uh, these protests that were happening globally, there was that, there was globally deadly pandemic and then there was also a lot of companies who, in response to racial tensions and 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 awareness and acknowledgement of bias and algorithms and technologies, were backing out of facial recognition technology. Like Amazon took a one-year moratorium back in 2020. And we're done for right now. We're not we're not gonna kind of do this until we can do it safely and we can do it properly, and we can really make sure that the regulations make sense and exist. Even Meta just recently took a break as well. A lot of companies are just like, hold on a second. We we know that we have the potential capability to get there. But now maybe is not the right time. And then in the 60s, again, there was also a globally, you know, deadly flu that was going around, there was also the civil rights movement. And then there was also the, you know, existence of facial recognition technology for the first time. So It's really interesting to think about how the technological challenges have changed between the 60s and and today, and how these factors have all kind of played in together. Even though the technology is more advanced, the challenges certainly do exist. Good on Apple for having that level of of accuracy, certainly for for their users. But I think that there certainly have been enough substantial bodies of knowledge that have come out. Lots of reports from NIST and other reputable sources that show that it's not always most most accurate, and there tends to be demonstrable bias in these tools. So there is a need to to roll it out safely. And then Jamal, as I'm sure you know and and can speak to as well, you know, what are your thoughts? Just if you don't mind me asking the question, I know I'm on the podcast. <laughs>
2: yeah, go ahead. I'm gonna sit back.
3: <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just curious. Like, what are your thoughts on the use of facial recognition technology from, like, let's say, like a law enforcement perspective when it comes to things like transparency and consent at scale? right? Because when we're talking about biometric data, which facial recognition technology definitely is, it's a much higher level of consent that's needed, right? Usually you need affirmative consent, not just like opt out. And when you're scraping so many different photos of so many different people, how can you do that in a way that is truly like ethically safe and compliant? I struggle with that one. Um, I don't know if you have an answer, but
0: no, I'm the same. I don't think there is an answer right now. And look, even if people say, look, we're only going to do it this way and we're going to have a strict, robust policy in place. What we've seen time and time again, what we've seen from state and state again is this purpose scope creep. This, they start off saying, we're going to do it with this and nothing else. And, like, you know what, we've got it. And now we're going to find a way of justifying it to do this. And then the policies kind of disappear, things change. And suddenly somebody discovers all of this stuff is being used in this way. And when people find out, there is public outrage and outrage. I think at King's Cross Station here in the United Kingdom, they tried to have facial recognition cameras. Why do you need to recognize what time I'm coming in to buy my ticket and which train I'm getting on? I'm just trying to use public transport. Why do we need facial recognition there? And then, what else are you going to do with that? And what else are you going to couple that information with? And I think it's getting to a stage where people are increasingly worried about living in surveillance states. If there's facial recognition that can even recognize you, even when you're wearing a mask, that means potentially somebody knows about your movements at any given time, where you've been, who you've been with, how long you've spent there, which kind of protests you've been to where you've been to worship, but what's left to know. Yeah, really well
3: said. And I think, I I just want to go out on a limb here and also say that I don't think that facial recognition technology is like the boogeyman. I don't think that like anything that targets people in a certain sense is, is necessarily evil. Some things are really cool, right? Like if you can use facial recognition technology to help me with like, for instance, enhanced security, and you can recognize even when I have a mask on, so I don't have to compromise my safety if I'm in a crowded train station, and I want to get access to my phone, that's kind of cool. If I'm walking through a mall, and something recognizes like, hey, it's Matt, and here's something cool that you might like, here's a new video game that just came out. I think that that's awesome. When I think about the future, I think like that's really cool. But then when you are like, hey, here's an advertisement for something that's really deeply personal to me and that I don't want other people hearing about or things like that, you know what I mean? And we've seen a lot of instances of things like that it's like facial recognition technology can be fine, just need to roll it out thoughtfully and slowly and have proper regulations. And to your point, Jamal, exactly, like that that scope creep, right? Of like, this is what we're going to use this for. But then in the back end, we're also using it for all this other stuff that you don't know about. And it it just, it completely goes against the principles of transparency. And at the end of the day, correct me if I'm wrong, again, Jamal, please, because, you know, I know you're, you're the GDPR guy, but like, yes, there's a lot of different regulations. There's a lot of requirements. There's a lot of nuance. But at the end of the day, I think if you take a principal's perspective to privacy, that is the the thing that's always going to steer you in the right direction. And what it really comes down to is user friendliness and transparency and consent.
0: Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there, Matthew. And this is the thing that we keep going back to time and time again with all the mentees in the academy is like, forget everything else, go back to the basic principles. What are we trying to achieve? What are the principles and how is this keeping in line with the spirit of those principles? And as long as you strip everything back and you come down to those basics, and I say that we should be using this as our compass to navigate what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable in which direction we should be moving towards so absolutely always bring that down to the principles the other thing I was going to say with all of this uh, facial recognition technology and stuff is one of the things that we've seen let's forget about facial recognition for a minute but when we are actually able to profiled individuals when we're actually able to learn things about them whether that's through their cookies or their device fingerprinting let's not even talk about facial recognition we're seeing that people's views are becoming more and more polarized we're seeing people are becoming more and more distant and it's because they're getting targeted with more of the stuff that they're looking at and more of the stuff that they like and they're losing this sense of a balanced perspective because now every time they go on the device the device has learned hey this is the kind of stuff they're interesting in. and they're getting more and more extreme and this is something that i'm getting very concerned about and i'm thinking like I've, I've recently become a father to my daughter amy may Thank god you. bless her right but i'm thinking like if this is the way things are by the time she's a teenager how is technology and her choices that she makes and the way she's being profiled going to impact the choices she makes Although she's believing she might be having a free choice, right? How is that going to shape who she becomes, the thoughts she has, the views she adopts, and who she ultimately becomes? And it's, it's you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's quite scary right now, actually. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Jamila and Matthew?
2: I think when technology feels like you're in a spy movie, then that's really cool. When it feels like your phone and your internet adverts know what you've been thinking, then that's the line. <laughs> Yeah, And that might be because I've been watching Marvel movies all week and that I kind of, um, and I got an Apple watch and I kind of talk into it like I'm in Spy Kids, but that's my line.
3: It's interesting because on that point of like, it knows what you're thinking. Jamal's taking a step further here by thinking about how, to what extent also is it maybe influencing your thoughts and, and you think that. Mm you're thinking that and it's giving you that advertising. Actually, it's influencing what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, You know, at what point is it a chicken or an egg? Like, yeah, it is an interesting thought and one that I haven't really personally looked into, you know, the research psychologically or technologically as to what influence that's having. I think it makes sense. It's interesting. It's thought provoking. But I think that that's why major brands and and big companies who are players in these various tech spaces have an even larger responsibility today than ever before to be responsible with tech, right? So I think like, Ethical tech, responsible tech, these are becoming common buzzwords among consumers. That's something that they're really looking for. And any company that is looking to continue to succeed and thrive and do well and not constantly get fined and slapped by regulators or have consumers drop off your platforms and droves, you need to be not only responsible, but transparent about how you're being responsible. Just the same way that we have nutrition facts on everything that we consume, digital content is no different. And you have to be very upfront with users of like, hey, this is, by the way, what we're doing. And this is how we're doing it. And this is how you can opt out of it, by the way, if, if you don't like it. So these these are all important things that I, I think a lot of the companies are taking seriously and doing, which is great. I think that we are evolving more towards where we should be when we're using this technology because consumers have become so much more hyper-conscious about it than they were in the past, right? Like, I, I'll be honest, like 10, 15 years ago, I wasn't thinking at all about how my data was being collected, right? I, and, and it wasn't a concern for me. And I didn't think that much about it. And usually when I would see an ad or like whatever tailored experience, user experience, I would just be like, this is magic, right? Like, I, I didn't understand the role of data. But today, the average person on the street, I think, knows so much more about mm-hmm. data privacy. And so hopefully, Jamal, especially with your background and, and your expertise, you're daughter is going to grow up and and kind of learn hopefully what to watch out for, right? It's going to be like, hold on a second. This is a little too good to be true. So that's, that's what we have to hope for.
2: Matthew, what do you... What kind of things, what kind of qualities do you look for when you're hiring in your industry?
3: So I've moved away from my my previous role as a hiring manager on our policy team. And now I'm back to being an individual contributor, which is like fantastic. But back when I was hiring and did have the opportunity to hire, I think it's really, and this is going to sound maybe like cliche, but genuinely, it's really about intellectual curiosity right? Any Anyone can kind of come in and say that, yeah, I have the basic qualifications, or I have certain work experience and things like that. But can you collaborate with the team? Can you get along with everybody? Do you have the right values? Do you care about the things that you should be caring about? Because again, data privacy is not just about compliance. And That is one of the like first things that get my ears perked up is it is not just about the regulatory frameworks and compliance. It is not about, Jamal, to your point, how well you can spout off different laws and, and what the text says how on a human level are you interacting with these principles? And and how does that inform your day to day? Because then that gives me trust that when you're in the driver's seat, you're going to make the right decision and I can trust you there. You know what I mean? So as long as you are hardworking, you're genuinely passionate, you do have an intellectual curiosity, and you do care about people and users, that shines through. I think it really sets people apart.
0: So what you're saying, Matthew, is the number one thing that you look for above everything else is the the character of the person who's applying. You want to see that they actually have a passion for what they're talking about. They're not just here to tick a compliance box and say, you have done my eight hours today and uh, I'll see you in the morning. You're, You're looking for the character to come through, the certifications, the experience, all of that is secondary.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, look, at the end of the day, a lot of these more harder skills, so to speak, you can get trained on that. We'll you know, we'll show you what to do. We'll show you what our processes are. We'll show you how we treat these different things. That's where the training comes in. I can't train you to care. I can't train you to be passionate. That, that has to come from you from, from day one. So so that's why I think that those are the most valuable characteristics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we couldn't agree more. And one of the things that we mentioned is as part of the pillars, the pillar we have is about personal branding. And that personal branding also includes how do you actually secure a uh, highly paid position, a respectful position with a good company in data privacy. And we have to kind of explain to them the psychology of what employers are looking for. And what we teach them is, look, Anyone can get trained, anyone can get upskilled, but it's the character they're looking for. They're looking for ultimately we say they're looking for three things. They're looking for your motivation uh, to actually want to do that job in that role for that company they're looking to see that you're actually competent in what you're doing and they're looking to see that you are actually going to be a good cultural fit to their team and most importantly before they even look at your competence and your cultural fit they want to understand that you have the right mindset the right character the kind of person that they would love to bring onto their team and you want to demonstrate that you're the kind of person that they should say don't let them leave the building without signing a contract because we need them and how do you do that how do you develop that passion for privacy that's when you need to have the right mindset you need to foster up mindset you need to have your activities on places where you get hired like LinkedIn talk about the relevant kind of things show that you are actively engage within these communities, within these networks, and really start bringing the conversation and be aware of exactly what's happening around you to show your motivation to really want to thrive and do well in this area for this specific business and in the role that you've applied for.
3: Absolutely. When I talk to somebody who has those qualities, I, I have the same sentiment where I kind of circulate the resume and I'm like, guys, like you, you got to talk to this person, right? Like you, you, you really have to, because those of us who are in the space we all value it. We all see it. We all know it when we see it, rather, right? Is like this person gets it. And again, it has nothing to do with your memorization skills of the CCPA or what have you. It's really about what is coming across and how you're communicating that passion. So 100%.
0: Fantastic. It should be like
3: that. Brings us to the end of today's podcast.
2: It does. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast today, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Time flies when you're having fun. I know. <laughs> yeah, Matthew, it was such a valuable podcast. I mean, I, I wish we had another hour every week to be able to talk about some of these things. And <laughs> you've got so much experience. I don't think we even managed to tap into All of that even a tenth of that knowledge that's in inside that brilliant mind of yours from all of our listeners, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this valuable information. And we look forward to having you back as a guest again soon. I'm really looking forward to
1: if you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released.
0: Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class Privacy Pro.
0: Please leave us a four or five star review.
1: And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast
0: or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about,
1: please send an email to team at KZ.
0: Until next time, peace be with you.